All right, good morning, everybody. Next week, next Sunday, we're having a potluck after second service. There's a sign-up sheet out there uh, for some extra things you can bring. If you need ideas, some soups or whatever, that's out there. Otherwise, business as usual. Bring a side. We provide the main course and, and enjoy it. Operation Christmas Child went really well. I think we had over 600 boxes, which is less than last year, I think, but that's because they had more relay stations, so it'll keep decreasing um, but out of those 600-plus boxes, you guys brought, I think, over 180 of those. So that was, that's pretty good. So uh, thanks for your support and your prayers and your help during that week. Um, and a lot of kids are going to be blessed now. So that was good. All right. This morning we're going to be in Numbers chapter 6. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 6. As we learn about the law of the Nazarite. A lot of people don't study numbers, but I think it's important, as I say every single week, to go through all the scripture, because these chapters here connect the dots. It's one thing to know the story of Samson, but if you don't understand chapter 6 of Numbers, you don't understand what he did wrong. You get misunderstandings about him cutting his hair, like that had something to do with it, and it really didn't. Um, it was the final straw, but that wasn't the that wasn't the breaking point. It started way before that. And so as we go through chapter 6, it helps us understand Hebrews chapter 10, and it also helps us understand uh, Judges 13. So um, that's why we go through these things, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Connects the dots. God knew what he was doing when he wrote it all down. And we want to have the whole counsel of God, not just stories. So in verse 1 of chapter 6, speaking of the law of the Nazarite, then the, law, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice or eat uh, fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation he shall, not, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall uh, let his locks of hair of his head grow all the days that he separates himself to the Lord. He shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head all the days of the separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. And that's our first break, the first nine or first eight verses here. The Nazarite vow was an interesting thing. It was by choice. It was something you could choose to do. By birth, the Levites were the priests. So you were born a Levite. Guess what you did for a living? That's what you did. You were a priest. But nobody else could really participate in those priesthood duties because you weren't born into that. This is an opportunity for those who weren't of the Levitical tribe, to choose to separate themselves and consecrate themselves for the service of the Lord. And so they'd make this vow, sometimes for a time period, sometimes for their whole lives. It depended on the person, and it was dependent upon the person. They got to choose how long they would do this. Sometimes it was just for a few weeks, maybe a month, maybe a couple months, maybe even a few years, or for some it was the rest of their lives. And so that time schedule was up to you. You could do a male or female. That's pretty rare in the Bible in the Old Testament. Male or female could choose to do this. 
Now, there's a reason for that because this picture of a Nazarite vow is actually a picture of our walk with Jesus, and that's how it applies to us today. As you learn about this Nazarite vow, this separation, this consecration, this commitment to God, you're going to see a direct correlation to our walk with Jesus as believers. And so a male or a female could choose to do this. Now, he does use the pronoun he and so on throughout, but he's meaning that as mankind, not man, not male. So as we go through this, understand that. In that first eight verses, we see the word separated, sep- uh, separation, separ- separates, uh, separates, um, and separate seven different times he says that. So he's trying to get something across to us. It's a decision to pull yourself towards God, and in the middle of doing that, you can't help but separate from the pack. That's just how it is. It isn't your fault. You've chosen to follow God. It's the pack that's decided not to follow God. So that's all you can do is you separate yourself, you consecrate yourself, and whether they're with you or not, you have to be here. Now that can look lonely, lonely, and that can feel lonely if your eyes aren't on the one you're drawing near to, Jesus Christ, or the Father in this case. If your eyes are on Him, your service is to Him, you don't look behind you. You hope everybody's joined you, you hope they're behind you or beside you, but they may not be. So it is a very personal decision. It can cost you some relationships at times. There can be some distance between you and those who used to be very close to you. Again, much like our walk with Jesus Christ. The closer you walk with Jesus, oftentimes the further and the more lonely and the more unique you become. Jesus had that same situation as he had his 70 disciples. And then he had the 12 who were closer to him. And then he finally had the three that went up on top of the mountain with him. It's a progression. The closer you are to the shepherd, the closer you are to the To Jesus Christ, the fewer and fewer people will be alongside of you. That can even happen in your own house. One spouse decides to draw near to God closer than the other. And although you didn't mean to, you just wanted to grow close to God, all of a sudden there's a separation there. There's a distance that didn't used to be there. And now the person who hasn't followed you may say, it's your fault. You're the one going to church all the time. You're the one reading your Bible all the time. I'm still the same person. But it's not the believer's fault. It's not the person drawing near to God's fault. It's the person who decided not to go along with them. They found their place on the road. They've been walking with Jesus for so long, and they found a good place to sit down and grow old. Well, the other may have decided to continue to walk on and get closer and closer, and that distance is just made. Now, as this Nazarite vow has male or female, it can be a certain time period. It's a choice, not a birthright, and the separation happens. It does cost you personal freedom. There were three specific things that the Nazarite was to steer clear of, and we just read them. The first one was the grape. What's wrong with grapes? Well, the first thing he wants us to steer clear of is the influence that alcohol can have upon you. That's the idea. Now, I'm I'm not translating that over to your walk with Jesus. I'm saying that at this point in time, at this Nazarite's uh, situation, you've got to stay away from being under the influence of another power. You don't want to put yourself under the other influence of something else greater than God, because that's what it'll do. It'll cause you to make poor decisions. It'll cause you to move in a different direction. And so steer clear of the fermented, but it doesn't stop there. It says, I also want you to steer clear of just regular grapes and raisins. I say, what's wrong with raisins, you know? No more raisin bran. Are you kidding me? It's my favorite cereal, provided I have 16 teaspoons of sugar on top. I mean, it should be coated, and then you watch the milk make the dry become wet, and you got those mounds of beautiful... Okay, back to the Bible. 
The idea behind not the grape or the raisin or being around the vine at all was I don't even want the appearance of evil in my life. I may not be drinking alcohol, but there I am sitting in the middle of the vineyard. So not even the appearance. I don't even want that. And so steer clear of everything. The second thing he tells us to do is to steer clear of cutting your hair. This is important because later on this becomes a part of the sacrifice we're going to read later on in the chapter. Your hair growing out, it starts out, you shave your head to start, and then you let your hair grow. And however long it is, that's how long. And then when you go back to the temple, you're going to cut it off, and you take that as an offering to God. It's the only thing you get to bring from yourself. That's the only thing you bring is this hair that's grown during this time period. So if it was years and years and years, well, you got a lot of hair. If it was just a few months, it's a little bit of hair. But either way, you get to bring it and you place it on the altar. That's it. Everything else is an animal or grain or something like that. The hair you bring. That hair represents the time. That's really all it does. It's the time. But it also, it also makes you noticed. When you see someone walking down the road in this culture and you see them with hair down to their shoulders, you're like, okay, you know, that guy's a Nazarite. They knew those sort of things. That's a Nazarite. You could tell by the way they walk, by the way they carry themselves. There was something about them with that long hair. That's a Nazarite. It was noticeable. And so people would watch them. As a representative of God, someone who separated them, their lives to God, consecrated their lives to God, committed to God, those long-haired people were pretty easy to spot. We don't use those. We use bumper stickers now. We don't have long hair necessarily, but we got one in the back of our car that says, you know, Jesus is my pilot. I'm the co-pilot. And, you know, Jesus take the wheel kind of thing. That's our thing. And so people see that bumper sticker, and I guarantee if you've got one on the back of your car, the world's watching you. Yeah, he doesn't use his turn signal. I see. Hey, he passed me going 10 miles an hour, and I was already going 5 miles an hour over. So he goes 15. Interesting. Let's scrape that off your car if you can't follow the law. Because they're watching you. And so your hair was, your example, later on becomes an offering. The third thing is you can't touch the dead. And the reason for that is that he doesn't love his mom and dad or love his brother and sister. Of course he does. But I don't want you touching anything dead because that represents the fall. There was no more death. There was no, there was no death. There was no decay before Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. Then death entered the world. That's when decay began. That's when everything started. So a dead body represents the fall represents sin. So I don't want you touched anything. I want you undefiled. I want you undefiled. Because I want your life to represent life, not death. Completely undefiled. I don't want you touching dead bodies, even if it's your mom and dad. This supersedes everything. This Nazarite vow supersedes all other. This is the thing. This is what you do. Now, Another word pops up throughout this chapter, and that's consecrates, consecrated, consecration. It's kind of a funny word that we don't use anymore. It's to be set apart, to set that apart. Some of you have dishes that are consecrated for Thanksgiving, consecrated for Christmas. Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Ours usually start that way, but then we break one of the regular everyday dishes, so we slip in a Christmas dish, and pretty soon, eh, it's all mixed up anyway, and you got a, you got a little mosaic going on on the table there. This consecration means you've taken your life and you've decided to sacrifice these three things, no grapes, no hair, uh, or long hair, and no touching of the dead. I'm going to take away my personal freedoms to focus on God, to give loyalty to God, to give me a purpose. This is what I'm focused on. This is what I'm doing for this set period of time or for the rest of your life. 
I'm consecrated. I'm set apart for God's service. That's what I do. I set apart. Along with that being set apart, I mentioned this or alluded to this earlier, you're going to miss out on some relationships. Some of the relationships you used to have that were really strong when you came to Christ, some of you can give me a witness about that, things changed. See, my plan was to get saved, to become a really great person, to be a really great person to those around me, and they're going to say, that guy's a great person, and Jesus is awesome, and I want Jesus too, and then they became great people, and it's all supposed to just be perfect. Everybody's going to get saved, we're all going to heaven, and that's how it is, but that ain't how it is. Thanksgivings aren't what I thought they'd be necessarily. Christmases aren't, and I don't know if any of you can give me a hallelujah or an amen to that, but sometimes it's a mixed multitude at those places where we're supposed to be giving God thanks. Not everybody's on board. And so some of those relationships are strained because you've drawn near to God, but they decided not to draw near to God, and the distance is unavoidable. You can't do anything about it. God stays put. He doesn't move. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. We know right where to find him. He's near to us. All we have to do is draw near to him. And when we do, because everybody's on the outskirts and we're all moving towards God, or some are, if they stay, there's a distance. But there's also a gap that's made up between you and God. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's a blessing. And we're going to see that later on in the sacrifices that are made. It's a blessing. If we turn to Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, Jesus warns us of this very thing, warns his disciples about this distance that's going to take place. A lot of people misunderstood why Christ came. They thought he was going to fix everything. In fact, that's what the whole palm branches were, laying on the road and throwing their coats down. Jesus is coming to fix everything. It didn't turn out like that. Things got bad. But he told him this was going to get bad. In verse 32, he begins, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. That's an eye-opener for a lot of people. I thought he did. I mean, Isaiah 9, that's what it says. He's going to bring peace. He's going to bring peace between God and man. But he's going to bring distance and division between everybody else who doesn't want to follow along, who doesn't want to go. There's a distance. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. That's pretty straightforward. Told his disciples it's not going to get easier. People aren't going to just jump on the bandwagon and join you. There's going to be some distance. There's going to be some persecution. It's going to happen. There's a sword, there's a division. When you consecrate your life to God, when you separate yourself unto the Lord, there's a distance that takes place. You don't want it there. But if you've ever walked with Jesus for any amount of time, you trade it for nothing. I, I love Christ. I love my wife, but I love Jesus so much more. 
My wife loves me, but she loves Jesus a lot more than me. But because we're both going in the same direction, because our marriage isn't unevenly yoked, because one of us hasn't decided to stop and sit still on the road, but we're both moving towards him, we're growing together. It's Jesus that brings us together. It's Jesus that gets things right, fixes my mind. My mind doesn't think about things right. I don't see the world right. When Christ came into my life, when, he, when I accepted him as my Lord and Savior, I trusted him for my salvation. I understood what he did, why he did it, because he loved me. He came into my heart. I started to see things right, the way he sees things. Gave me a better perspective. Brought me out of myself from looking horizontally at all the problems. And he set me up. He says, don't you see how this is all working out? Do you see what's wrong? I didn't bring evil. People did. I didn't create anything. All I did was give you the opportunity to not obey me. And they chose it. And by not obeying me, they brought evil into the world. Don't eat the fruit. It was fine. There's nothing wrong with the fruit. There's nothing magical. Fruit didn't contain evil pits or seeds. It was the fact that he said, don't, and they said, forget you, I'm doing it, that brought evil. He created it right at that point. And all of a sudden, here we are. And when Christ came into my heart and changed me and I started seeing things, and my wife sees things the way I see things, the way Christ sees things, We're drawn together. There's no distance between us. We're closer and closer than we ever have been. 24 years this December. Close. Because we're both with Christ. I tell you what, without Christ though, being different, I'll be different. Christ is what makes us, us. And not him and her. It's what makes us one flesh. Not roommates. Not people that just pass each other in the hallway at the same location, at the same uh, domicile. But we're actually one flesh. It's Christ. But Jesus says it's, it's going to be interesting with your parents. It's going to be interesting with your brothers and sisters. It's going to be interesting with the in-laws, the closer you draw to me, because there's going to be distance. And as bad as you want to make it up, the only way it gets made up is if they decide to follow me too. That's the only way. Or if you leave me, if you decide to be with them instead of with me, because that's always an option. It's always a choice. And so he warns us about that. Now, Samson is our greatest example of a Nazarite. And we've talked about the grapes, the hair, and the dead. And if you know the story of Samson, because everybody's colored that coloring page in Sunday school class, haven't you? You know, pushing down the pillars. And you know what? They've always got Samson as just this guy that spends all day at the gym, Right? You know, he didn't look like that, right? He couldn't have because nobody ascribed his strength to the way he looked. Everybody wondered, what in the world is with that guy? How come he's so strong? No, he was the skinniest guy in the room. He was a skinny little runt. And they're like, hey, they get this idea that he's some huge muscle man as if it had something to do with him. And it didn't. It was all God. It was all God. That's why they kept asking, what's the secret to your strength? Because it ain't the gym. Seen you eat a box of Twinkies, Samson. It ain't the gym. Samson's life started out interesting, not how it normally goes. He was consecrated from birth. In other words, his mom got this message from the angel that he was going to be consecrated from birth. And he's not supposed to have a razor touch his head, and he's also supposed to stay away from grapes his whole life, and he's also not supposed to touch anything dead. And mom and dad took that to heart, and they did that, and they raised him that way. But this kid grew up. Much like a pastor's kid would, 
going to church, doing what he's supposed to do, but boy, he didn't want to be there. Not at first. I'm not saying our, my kids do that. I think, I think they're on board. I think they've seen more of Christ at home than they have here, but Samson wanted to do things his own way, and so he says, it's time for me to find a wife when he got a little older, and he looked at the Philistines. The Philistines are like the mortal enemy of the Jews. The Philistines, see, this is in Judges chapter 13, the book of Judges. Let me give you a little background. There's a story of the Israelites doing well in the sight of the Lord and then doing evil in the sight of the Lord and doing well in the sight of the Lord. It's the most irritating book to read in your whole life because you're like, can't you get a clue? Can we stabilize here? Well, they're in a downtime. They've been under the influence or under the authority of the Philistines for 40 years, and God raises up this little boy named Samson to be his deliverer. And this is what he's growing up. But Samson, yeah, right, ministry. He knows what he's supposed to do. He's got this beautiful long hair. He's never touched a grape, but he decides to go find a wife from the Philistines. And on his way to look for this wife, he passes through a vineyard. That's his first breach. Now, it doesn't say he was drinking a bunch of wine in the vineyard. He may have been, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. It says he went through the vineyard. What's that do? What's the first thing knocked off? The appearance of evil. Eh, whatever. No big deal. But he still has his strength, okay? So while he's in this vineyard where he's not supposed to be, that's when the lion attacks him. And he kills the lion. Cool. Great story. Good coloring page for sure. Boys love it. Oh, It's a little more gore than I thought, but all right, good job, Bobby, you know, kills this lion. That's not a problem. Philistines get killed all the time by Samson, and apparently that was okay. But the problem was when he went back through the vineyard there again a second time, decides to go take a look at that rotting corpse of the lion and touches it and grabs some honey that's out of the middle of it. Defiled, step two. Now, he's on a a razor's edge now, and I think he knows it because his wife... Wife two, basically, Delilah, keeps asking him, what's the secret of your strength? Tell me the secret of your strength. I want to know the secret of your strength. If you love me, and she was just this manipulative little gal. That's how I'll put her. And Samson kind of lies to her a couple times, kind of thinks maybe this, if you braid it, if you put it in a weaver's loom. He's dancing around it. He's playing with that last strand. Because even he in his own heart knows, you know... I probably ought to keep one of these three things to myself, you know. But a decision was made in Samson's heart in his mind that perhaps my strength comes from myself and not from God after all. This is no big deal. If you cut my hair, that'll do it. So she does. She cuts his hair while he sleeps, and he wakes up thinking he's going to do like he's done before because he thought his strength came from himself, but it didn't. And he was weakened, and they captured him. And they put his eyes out, and they strapped him and made him an indentured servant, a slave, strapped to the thing that the oxen would be strapped to, pushing this millstone around, walking around day after day, grinding the grain is what he did. That's what his life had become. It had nothing to do with the grapes. It had nothing to do with his hair or touching the dead line. It had to do with his commitment to God. It was his commitment to God. It was understanding that his strength came from God. It was his heart for God. It wasn't about some magical three things that if he could keep those things straight in his mind, it wasn't a ritual. It wasn't some sort of religious test. 
It had to do with his commitment to God. See, when you separate yourself unto the Lord, you consecrate yourself, you set yourself apart, your commitment focuses you. It gives you loyalty. It gives you purpose. It's for the Lord. And that was all lost on Samson. When he finally said, cut my hair, he had given up everything he had. His loyalty was gone. His focus was gone. His purpose was gone. He's weak as every other man was weak now and and a slave to his enemy. Man, when he was walking with God, there wasn't an enemy that could stand. Nobody had a hope. Nobody had a prayer. But with that gone, with his commitment to God gone, he was vulnerable like anybody else and made so. Now he's pushing this wheel day after day after day, and his hair is growing. Had nothing to do with his hair. Had everything to do with him sitting there thinking blindly, it's God. It's the Lord. It's his strength. I'm set apart for him. What am I doing here? Why am I doing this? How did I get here? It's because I left him. My commitment's gone. And so as his hair is growing, his eyesight didn't come back, but no grapes, no dead things, nothing like that. He's led around by a little boy because he's blind. They thought that was funny. This, the Philistines thought it was funny to have this giant of an Israelite carried around or led around by a little boy. Well, they have a feast. The Philistines have this gigantic feast with all the heads of state, all the leaders are there. Everybody that's anybody's there on top having this porch party on top of the roof. And they thought it'd be funny to bring Samson out, chain him to a pillar, and let this little boy lead him there as like a trophy. Look what we've done to the Israelites. Who are they? Look at us. That's an example of their God right there. We can defeat him. Just a kind of a, you know, a trophy, a little mascot for the party. Samson's at the lowest point, but he's obviously had his hair grown back. His commitment to God is back. And he asks the little boy, lean me up against the pillar that's supporting the porch roof where everybody is. So the little boy does it. And Samson, in his last effort, pushes down these two pillars and it crashes down, kills everybody at the party, all the leaders of the Philistines. It's the greatest victory Samson ever has, but in the process, kills himself. Sacrifices himself. It's the only time he ever got it. It's the only time you ever understood it ain't about me, my wife, my vineyards, my dead lion, my wife. It had to do with God. It's about him. It's about his enemies. I'm just a tool in God's hands. I want to be used by God. So he crushes them, but crushes himself in the process. Later on in Hebrews, he's called, he's part of the great hall of faith. Now, if you're going to write a book about someone who's a great man of God, I could see baby Billy Graham, Right? You could maybe picture some guys that you'd write a book about as great men of faith. But Samson, whose only true great victory for God was when he died at the very end? I mean, that's a story you tell your kids, hey, whatever you do, don't be like Samson. But when God writes about him, from Judges to Hebrews, there's something that takes place in between those two books, and that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the cross. On the other side of the cross, he's a great man of faith. That's a good thing. That's how Christ sees you. That's how Christ sees me. See, I don't think of myself that way. I think of myself as a Samson. I kind of do some things that are right once in a while, you know. And boy, if you're, you're going to hear about it from me. Did you see that awesome thing I did? You know? <laughs> don't look over here. But when Christ sees me, when God sees me, when the Father sees me, he sees me, well, he sees me through the lens of Jesus. He sees the cross first, and then he sees me, and I am perfect in his sight, and so are you, as a believer in Jesus. That's amazing. 
Samson, chapter 11, Hebrews. Are you kidding me? Yep. That's encouraging. So, the next section, verse 9. And believe me, we'll go a lot faster now, but that was the focus. Now, if anyone dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, this is that Levite, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. Then on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons, or two, two young pigeons, uh, to the priest, to the door of the tabernacle meeting. The priest shall offer one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering, and make atonement for him because he sinned in regard to the corpse. And he shall sanctify his head that same day. He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in the first year as a trespass offering. But the former day shall be lost because his separation was defiled. Two good things here. The first, Well, I guess both are good. First thing is there's a second chance. It's a do-over. You haven't blown it. We can start over. You're, it's like you can't do another Nazarite vow, but we've got to start over again. You've got to come back. You've got to take off your hair, shave it off again, give the trespass offering. It wasn't your fault. We know that Bob just died right beside you while you were moving that cow or moving that cart or whatever. But nevertheless, you got defiled, so we need to start over again. And God gives us grace. He gives us mercy. He gives us all of that. And that's important. I mean, it's wonderful. But there is loss. Every time I sin, God forgives me because I can't out-sin His grace. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean there wasn't loss in the process. I could be witnessing to my friends and my family, uh, you know, Thanksgiving after Thanksgiving after Thanksgiving, hoping someday they'll just come to know the love of Jesus Christ. Like I've showed them every time until that one Christmas when I couldn't stand it anymore. And I was so tired of them talking about my Lord that way. I just blew up. Now you've got more Christmases to come and you've got second chances and third chances and all that, but that was a great loss. It's a great loss. Hard to recover from that, but you can start over. There is grace and mercy for that. And God shows us that. And that's a good thing. If there's a second chance for you, there's another opportunity to continue. But boy, you lost a lot of ground with those people. Because with that long hair of yours, that bumper sticker, that Bible you carry, whatever it is, it's the long hair in your life that shows people you're consecrated and set apart for Christ, you are being watched and they are waiting for you to blow it. They're waiting for you to become defiled. How many of you are tired of looking at the news and watching another preacher fall? Oh, I can't believe he did that. Did somebody think that that person wasn't a sinner? Did we get the idea somewhere? that Well, yeah, but they're there. Well, yeah, but everybody needs prayer. Everybody needs forgiveness. They don't stop sinning when they become a pastor. Unfortunately, if you thought I wasn't, hey, news to you. I repent daily. I need Jesus' blood daily. I need forgiveness daily. I need grace daily. Uh, Granted, those are some big ones that if they make the news, it's pretty big, but... Oh, the world loves it, don't they? They clap their hands. Oh, I knew it. They're no better than I am. And I don't have Jesus, so I don't need what they have and all that. And they missed the point entirely because they thought it had something to do with being just a better person when it had to do with taking care of the fact that you're not a great person. That's why Christ died. Christ died to get us into heaven because we're not making it on our own. And that's our message to the world. The world is looking for our long hair, bumper-stickered, Bible-carrying lives to drop and to fall and to put us up as trophies and set us against the pillars of mascot of someone who follows Christ and what they look like afterwards. 
broken, defeated, blind. But we get second chances. Verse 13. Now, this is the law of the Nazarite. Here's the, here's the interesting thing. When you're done with your Nazarite vow, and your hair's all long, and you're done, the time period's over, or whatever, you know, here's what you do. Now, this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall present his offering to the Lord. You're bringing something to God? You're bringing animals and sacrifices to God after you've just given them your whole life or a certain time period? A lot of people show up at the door saying, what am I going to get now? Hey, God, did you see that service? I just let you know I was serving you. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Grandpa Davis came down for Thanksgiving. That's Jenny's dad. We call him Grandpa Davis. My parents are Papa and Nana, according to kids. So Grandpa Davis came down, just made it super special. Just excellent Thanksgiving. Wonderful. Well, he shows up, pulls in, and he's got comes out of his car, and he's got three jars of some kind of pickled something that he made himself, canned peaches and all that. He's retired. He's got time. So he's got canned peaches, watermelon pickles. <laughs> but anyway, Jenny loves them. So there they are. And and then some other things. But then he's got his hands. And, oh, let me take that for you. And he goes, you know what my dad always said? When you show up at someone's house, you better be ringing your doorbell with your elbow. I thought, oh, that's good. I like that. But here we are as the Nazarite coming to the house of God. And guess what? We're ringing the doorbell with our elbow. Because we're bringing stuff to him. He shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall present his offering to the Lord. One male lamb in the first year without blemish as a burnt offering. One ewe lamb in its first year without blemish as a sin offering. One ram without blemish as a peace offering. A basket of unleavened bread. Cakes of fine flour mixed with oil. Unleavened wafers anointed with oil. And their grain offering with their drink offerings. That's a lot of stuff. That's expensive. In Acts chapter 21, now you understand that. What's Acts 21? Acts 21 is when Paul was convinced by James, could you please sponsor these four men as they go to shave their heads? Sponsor? Yeah, you need to pay all this for each four of them because they're all Nazarites. They're going there, and I want you to sponsor them to show the rest of the world that you're not saying bad things about the law. Now you understand Acts 21 and how expensive that was for Paul to do this, and of course he agreed, and he has to bring all this stuff for these guys because who has this? Then the priest shall bring uh, them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord. With the basket of unleavened bread, the priest shall also offer its grain offering and its drink offering. Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. Hmm. So you take this hair that's been growing and you shave it off and that's what you bring. Baskets full or handfuls. Either way, you bring it to the Lord to use as part of the sacrifice. And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, one unleavened cake from the basket, one unleavened wafer, and put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated hair. And the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy for the priest, together with the breast of the wave offering and the thigh and the heave offering. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. Done. It's over. It's over. What's with the hair? 
The hair was the thing that everybody noticed. The hair was the thing that set you apart, that showed everybody else physically, outwardly, that you were different. Do you know the Bible says that there are seven different crowns that we can earn? Earn them is probably a strong word that he calls them that. He says you can earn these crowns, but one of them is salvation. All these There's seven different crowns. Look them up. And when you read the book of Revelation, you see the elders sitting around the throne of God, and what are they doing with those crowns? Throwing them back at the feet of the Lord. See, this is symbolic. You take that hair, this crown of glory, this thing that's been, you've been recognized for, the world knew you because of this. You shave that off and you say, it ain't me, it's you. It's all you. These seven crowns you gave me, thank you. I'm so glad I got to earn them, and I'm glad I'm opening the gates of heaven with my elbow because my hands are full of crowns. But when I get in, the first thing I do, and everybody does, is throw them back at Jesus' feet. They're yours. It's been such a blessing walking with you, God. I don't want to keep these crowns to myself. I didn't earn those crowns. I only did these things because you were in me, because you were in my heart. They're just natural fruit from walking close to you. Thank you, God. And that's our thank you offering to him. That's what the hair is. This has been the best time. When I consecrated my life to you, God, when I set this thing in motion, when I separated myself from the world and devoted my service to you, my, my, my heart, my service to you, God, it's been the best time of my life. And this hair, I'm not putting it in my scrapbook. It's yours, God. It's a picture. When I show up in heaven, I don't want to show up empty-handed. You're going to have one crown if you get to heaven. That'll be the salvation crown. You get that for sure, but there's others. There's others. I think they're nesting. I don't know how they work because you can only one wear one crown at a time, I think, unless you, unless you stacked them or something. I don't know. Or maybe one for every day of the week. I don't know how that works. But anyway, there's seven of them. And I want to have seven to throw at his feet because he's worthy. I want to have seven to give to him. So they do. Verse 21, this is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord the offering for his separation. And look at this. And besides that, Whatever else his hand is able to provide, according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of, of his separation. What's that? The Bible's pretty specific, usually, but now all of a sudden he says, now if you do all this, whatever else you got, bring it. That's kind of cool. Kind of leaves it open, doesn't it? What else can I bring? What else can I bring to God? That reminds me of that Drummer Boy song, one of my favorite songs. Drummer Boy, Drummer Boy isn't in the nativity right? He doesn't exist, but the song is the greatest because the kid brings what he has. I don't have gold. I don't have silver. I don't have Frankus's myrrh. I don't have what the wise men have. I don't have any of that stuff, but what I do have is a gift that God has given me to play, and I'll play for you. So he plays that. It's my favorite song. As a kid, I always loved that because as a child of God, as a believer in Jesus Christ, that's all I do. I'm nothing but a drummer. That's all I got. But if I drum, it's going to be for you, God. It's going to be for you. Guys, that dedication to God, that separation to God, that consecration to God, that commitment to God, you're never, ever going to get to heaven and say, man, I wish I hadn't consecrated so much time to God. I wish I hadn't spent so much of my time doing that, this, or the other for the Lord. It'll be the opposite. It'll be the opposite. Now, let me switch gears. Verse 22, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, now all of you have heard this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So 
They shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. And we've all heard that. We either have a plaque or a plate that said that, or we heard it at some funeral or the end of some service, like today. Oh, yeah. I remember that. It's pretty cool. I mean, I like it. It's memorable. I can memorize that. It's pretty easy. There's so much going on here. When God speaks to Moses and tells him to tell Aaron, Aaron is the priesthood. These are the men that represent God to the people. Okay? He says, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. There's no other way then. If you're going to represent God to the people, here's how you do it. If you don't do it this way, you're misrepresenting God. Because this is what I'm telling you to tell them to tell them. It's third hand. I want them to know that the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm going to bless you. I'm watching out for you. I keep you. God wants us to know his heart towards us. I'm your father. I love you with an everlasting love. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. When God looks at me, I get the idea sometimes he's looking at me like this. But ain't it. He's looking at me like a newborn kid, crying and screaming and pooping in my diapers. And he looks at me and says, man, you are the best. And I don't understand that. But that's how he sees me. His face shines upon me. He says, and be gracious unto you. I will give you unmerited favor. It's not up to you. You can't earn unmerited favor. It's unmerited. You just get it. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. He's lifting you up and he's going to give you peace. Uh, Any father will tell you this. All I want is my kids to have assurance, comfort, and peace in their hearts. I want them to know that they're safe and loved. Because in that environment, they're going to grow up to be great men and women. I want them to know that. Our Father wants us to know that. I want to give you peace. Sometimes we read this section. Let me read it to you how we hear it sometimes. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, break gracious to you. It sounds like I'm hoping that upon you. That Pastor J.D., I really hope God blesses you. I really hope God's gracious to you. I really hope he shines his face upon you. That's not what it says. God says, guys, if you're going to represent me, you tell them this is what's happening. Not what could happen if they beg me enough. No, this is what is happening. Here's what I am doing. I am blessing you. I am keeping you. My face is shining upon you. I am gracious unto you. I am lifting up my countenance upon you. And I am trying anyway to give you peace, assurance, love. That's what I'm called to do. Guys, that's what any of us are called to do. You know the Bible says in Revelation 1 that we're all kings and priests? We all have this Nazarite vow. If you believed on Jesus for your salvation, you know that you have this going on. You don't have to stay away from the vine, the hair cutting, or dead things. That's all in Christ. And when God calls us to represent him here on this world, this is how he wants us to speak to them. Because it's the loving kindness of Christ that leads people to repentance. If they know that I am blessing you, I am keeping you, my face is shining upon you, I am being gracious to you, I am lifting up my countenance upon you, and I am giving you peace, that's what I'm to tell the world. When a person gets that in their heart, when they understand that what God gives us, not taking from us, what he gives us is immeasurable, unearned. It causes people, guys, that's where holiness comes from. 
It comes from the understanding of how God feels about you, what he thinks of you, what he's done for you, what he's doing for you. That's where holiness comes from. That's where sin disappears from my life. They've got to understand him first, and then these other things vanish away. They disappear. My kids obey me as a father, not because I'm going to beat them senseless if they don't. They obey me because they know my heart towards them. They obey me because they know I love them. I'm looking out for their best interests and I don't want them to get hurt. And dad's pretty wise most of the time. That's why they obey. That's why when I say, hey, sit down, don't climb that ladder, get down, don't do that. Oh, I better not. Because dad normally lets me do crazy stuff, but he's kind of worried about this, so something must be wrong. They understand my heart. Guys, the world needs to know the father's heart towards them for them to understand why they obey not so that they're dangled over hell, although that's a real thing. Jesus was sent by the Father for you, for me, so that we don't go where he isn't, which is hell. Understand that? The world's made a decision to follow after themselves, to follow after Satan, They've made a decision not to follow after God, to be where he is when they die. They've made that decision already. All the world is a waiting room for those who have either accepted Christ and are going to heaven or have rejected salvation or never heard it and are set on going to hell. They're hell-bent on going to hell. My mission, our mission, our message to them is that Christ has fixed that. You don't have to go there anymore. What you've decided to hurt yourself with by being disobedient to God, by being absent from God, by separating yourself from God, ending up in hell on your own, by your own volition, he's made a way for you to come back. His son had your wrath poured upon his head. His son took the cross. His son defeated death. His son was raised from the dead. And you're hidden in him if you believe on Jesus, if you trust in that rescue mission that is the cross. This morning, maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you've never made him your Savior. Maybe you've never understood it. I hope you did this morning. Pray with me. It's between you and God. All I'm doing is giving you an example of what you need to speak. And it's not about about mimicking me or imitating what I say. It's about you talking to God using these words or your own. To say, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, that I had separated myself from you, but I want to draw near to you now, and I know that I can only do that through your son, Jesus, because he made a way for me. And so I take that rescue mission. I accept that peace that you offer to me, and I thank you for it this morning. So pray, Lord, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to be my Savior. I know that you love me while I was still your enemy, while I was trying to separate myself from you as much as I could. But you loved me so much, you looked upon me like a child, when I was being anything but a child of yours. And you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross instead of me, in place of me, to take the wrath that was intended for me and my disobedience you placed upon your own son instead. You sacrificed him for me. And I thank you for that. And thank you also that although he died on the cross and he was buried, and for three days he was in that tomb, but he got up, he rose. And because he rose, because he resurrected, That means that death couldn't hold him. That means he was the perfect sacrifice. That means he was accepted by you as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And now he's seated with you. And if I believe in that, I trust in you, I know I'll be seated with you also.
So God, I receive your son Jesus as my Lord and Savior this morning. Now I want him to be Lord too. I know you love me and I know you died for me and I know that I'm saved and I know I'm going to heaven, but because of that, from that, I want to live a life that's consecrated, set apart for you, in service of you. Not to gain salvation or even to keep salvation, but because of salvation. So God, help me to walk with you now as closely as possible. And all that, that may mean separation from others, it'll mean being united with you. That's all I want to do. Let's be as close to you as possible, Lord. So thank you for what you've done. Lord, bless these folks as they go today. Bless them with opportunities to represent you properly to this lost and dialing world, that they might have the words of grace and hope and love and mercy. That our hair, <laughs> whatever that looks like, whatever identifies us as Christians would be a blessing to those around us. When they'd see us, they'd see that we're walking with you. That they'd be thirsty and hungry for what we have. And Lord, help us not to be stingy. Help us to hand out heaping helpings of grace and mercy to those who need it so desperately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.